One day, in 1929 or 1931 or 1932, William Edmondson looks up in the sky and sees a tombstone, just hanging there in the noontime sun. It's a vision from God, he says. God wants him to make a tombstone. Now, William Edmondson is not a sculptor or a stonecutter. He's never made a tombstone. He's a hardworking middle-aged man in Nashville, Tennessee, who suddenly has some time on his hands. He's a man in his yard, looking up at the sky. But there's that tombstone, and as he later reports, he feels he should make it. So he looks around his yard, and there's a pile of limestone that someone had dumped there at some point. Now it's up to him to carve it. A few years pass. Edmondson starts going to church, but he never goes back to work. He's doing the Lord's work now, using a hammer and a railroad spike to carve these incredible, heavy, highly evocative depictions of mostly biblical imagery, like angels and the ark and Jesus on the cross, along with some sculptures of animals and people, often on tombstones. So they're filling up his yard as though he were living in a cemetery of his own making. Eventually, he gets some visitors, artsy types like writers and photographers and people from New York. And one day, he gets word that the Museum of Modern Art in New York wants to see his work. William Edmondson is African-American. The Museum of Modern Art, since its founding in 1929, had never given any African-American artist a solo show. So, in 1937, only a few years after he started carving, William Edmondson becomes the first. This is The Object, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, the story of a man on a mission and an art world struggling to see beyond the stereotypes. I'm Tim Gearing, and this is the first show of the second season. As I went down to the river to pray, studying about that good old way and who shall wear the star. William Edmondson is born during Reconstruction on the Edmondson and Compton plantations where his parents were enslaved, just a few miles from where he eventually makes his home. He ends up in manual labor, working for the railroad, and then the teacher's college at Vanderbilt University, and then for a long time as a janitor at a hospital, until the early 1930s. The Depression is on, but he has his own home in Nashville, and he lives there as a bachelor, surrounded by family. Now, down the road lives a guy named Sidney Hirsch, kind of a dandy and a dabbler, who's into mystical numerology and goes off to Paris to hang with Gertrude Stein and poses nude for Rodin. And when he gets back to Nashville, he writes some plays and starts a poetry group called The Fugitives, which ends up being kind of a big deal in the 1920s in poetry circles. Which is to say, he has some time on his hands. So, in the early 1930s, 
When Edmondson begins filling up his yard with carvings, Hearst stops to talk, and they become acquaintances or something like it. In fact, Hirsch, it's believed, later ends up commissioning a nude sculpture from Edmondson, very possibly of himself. Anyway, Hirsch also introduces Edmondson to his arty friends, and eventually, a photographer for Harper's Bazaar, the magazine, comes from New York. She takes some photos of Edmondson working in his yard. These photos end up on the desk of Alfred Barr, the founding director of the Museum of Modern Art. And in these photos, these striking black and white modernist photos of an African-American man in overalls and a torn-up hat happily pounding out a tombstone, Barr sees something he likes. Alfred Barr was kind of a rebel with a receding hairline and a Harvard degree. And a cause, too. Determined to expand people's notions of art. He taught art for a while after college and would assign no other reading but magazines like Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. And instead of visiting museums once on a field trip, he took his students to a candy factory. Barr became the first director of MoMA at just 27, and his influence began seeping in, or seeping out. In 1935, the show of Vincent van Gogh helped shift the popular image of an artist from someone like Rembrandt or Da Vinci to the red-bearded bohemian who had cut off his ear. MoMA opened in 1929 in New York, of course, at the height of the Harlem Renaissance when African-American artists and writers and musicians rose up to create a rich and empowering body of work between World War I and World War II. The MoMA was slow to embrace what was happening uptown. Jennifer Marshall is an associate professor of American art at the University of Minnesota and for many years taught a seminar on the Harlem Renaissance. And she notes that MoMA could have featured any number of professional African-American artists in a solo show, in its first decade of existence. But it didn't. Instead, Alfred Barr and his curators see these photos of William Edmondson pounding away in his yard and decide, this is our guy. In fact, from their perspective, he's the perfect guy. Because he's inspired by God, Marshall notes, Edmondson fits right into a classical tradition going back to da Vinci. Of a genius, guided by the spirit. He's the muscle in this scenario. All he has to do is release the work from the stone. It's a story that offers a certain traditional pedigree while also obeying a primary rule of racism, right? That a black man could never have done this on his own. So Edmondson, in this view, is unthreatening. He doesn't appear to challenge the white art establishment, unlike the professional African-American artists whose work was being passed over by museums at the time. To the white liberal intellectuals of midtown Manhattan, Edmondson is simply charming. 
As the great African-American poet James Weldon Johnson sarcastically wrote at the height of the Harlem Renaissance, a Negro in a log cabin is more picturesque than a Negro in a Harlem flat. Of course, Edmondson's art hasn't come out of nowhere, right? It hasn't fallen from the sky. He's certainly aware of modern art. There are art books in the home of Sidney Hirsch where he has become a familiar face. And cemetery sculpture has a long history in African-American communities in the South, along with a persistent memory of African totemic symbols like the turtle and the snake. As one Edmondson scholar put it, there's a Euro-American mainstream, there's an Afro-Atlantic mainstream. Edmondson's forte was to sail boats in both streams. But Edmondson is also part of a rising trend. A trend of the untrained, the anti-elite, the outsider, the folk art aesthetic. Here it is, the 1930s, in the midst of the Great Depression, and the elites have cratered the economy. And so we turn to everyone else. People who work with their hands and make art with their hands. Sometimes out in the yard with a railroad spike. The folk. In 1932, Alfred Barr showcased folk art at MoMA with weather vanes and duck decoys and cigar store statues and even cookie cutters. Very drawl cookie cutters, according to the museum marketing, of course. So here's Edmondson, folk artist. Never lived more than a few miles from the place of his birth, and suddenly, he's in the right place at the right time. And he knows it. The Museum of Modern Art brings 31 of Edmondson's sculptures to New York for consideration. They end up choosing 12. Many of them religious, but also some non-religious, like a lawyer and a bride and a ram. And they tuck this show of a dozen sculptures in an alcove space, in temporary digs the museum has in Rockefeller Center. While their big new building is being built, and everything is a little scaled down. They think about writing a small catalog of the show, or an essay for the museum magazine, but decide not to, and put out some media releases instead for newspapers to reprint. Here's how the museum describes Edmondson. Quote, A simple old Negro of Nashville, Tennessee. Almost illiterate. Entirely unspoiled. Likely to have never seen a piece of sculpture not his own. The museum quotes him in dialect, like something of Huck Finn or Uncle Remus or minstrel shows, talking about Jesus working through him, a kind of artistic telepathy, which he may well have played up. But also, when written up in dialect like dis and day, is meant to sound uneducated. And it works. 
Stories about Edmondson run in newspapers across America and Europe, with headlines like Former Negro Errand Boy Honored as Great Sculptor. Like, it's a novelty. Almost unbelievable. Which is exactly the point. In Hollywood, there's a trope, a stock character, called the magical Negro, right? Like the impossibly wise old nanny, or the impossibly wise old chauffeur. Always non-threatening, always insightful. Magical, even. And they're usually in the service of white people. And that, in many ways, is how William Edmondson is presented fashioned into a character that white people could appreciate. And then, having played his role, his time in the limelight quickly comes to an end. When Edmondson's show is over, the museum doesn't buy any of the 31 sculptures it brought to New York. The curators never bother to meet Edmondson. He never leaves Nashville, which serves the story. The racist narrative of so-called primitives, after all, is that they're stuck in time and place. Edmondson does end up selling seven of the ten sculptures for sale in the show. And after the show, he continues to sell work. He's on the payroll of the Works Progress Administration during the Depression, and even his WPA supervisor buys some work. He's photographed by Edward Weston, the great American modernist, And he becomes a local phenomenon. City workers haul curbstone from construction sites to his yard so he can keep carving. But he never has another show like the MoMA show again. Critics seem to think it was one too many. Quote, there is something so charming, so naive about those clumsy limestone carvings, one reviewer wrote that it seems an unforgivable thing for any large city institution to take them out of his garden. In 1943, the curator of Edmondson's MoMA show is asked by the federal government if he would be up for an art project. And she says to forget about him. He's an aged and illiterate primitive, she says. And I doubt if he would have any idea what the project is all about. (laughs) William Edmondson is happy for his moment of fame. It brings glory to God. His fall, well, he seems no worse for it, except older and wiser, if that's possible, right? Then, in the late 1940s, Edmondson becomes sick with cancer. He occasionally chisels inscriptions on tombstones, commissioned by members of his church. But otherwise, he's done. And the grass grows tall around the tombstones in his yard, deepening the mystery of his mission. In 1951, he dies. And he's buried in Mount Ararat Cemetery named for the mountain where Noah's Ark is said to rest after the floodwaters receded, the oldest African-American cemetery in Nashville. 
Now, ironically, he does not have a tombstone. His grave is unmarked, and a fire burned the cemetery's records, and now it's not known where he lies. Jennifer Marshall says the tombstone figures he made for black patrons have all but disappeared from cemeteries, taken by looters. But many sculptures he sold to white people are now appearing again on the market as the generation that inherited them moves on. Recently, a piece by Edmondson sold for $785,000 at auction. It's a sculpture of a boxer, thought to be Jack Johnson, the first African-American heavyweight champion. Edmondson was supposed to be unthreatening. But here's this boxer, who humiliated whites, hoping for a great white hope to defeat him. He went to prison on false charges because he consorted with white women. And he died in a car crash after speeding away from a diner that refused to serve him. The urbane atheist who patronized Edmondson no doubt thought of his sculptures and biblical visions as folksy, charming. But there's another way to think of them, like his vision of a flood that swallowed up the mountains and the valleys and the fields of the south and wiped them clean, which is that he profoundly understood evil and believed a reckoning would come one way or another. In Edmondson's rendering of the boxer, he has risen from his stool. His dukes are up. He is about to knock someone out. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, with new episodes coming out every month. I'm Tim Gearing. Thank you to Jennifer Marshall of the University of Minnesota for sharing her knowledge. Send us feedback, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you listen. And thank you. <laughs> <laughs>